Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us, that you're not just this fuzzy, warm feeling inside, but that you would communicate to us things, that you would feed us information, that you would give us wisdom, and that you would guide us along a path. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning would be helpful to that. Lord God, I pray that this morning we would hear something that would benefit and nourish our soul, that would cause us to shine a little brighter. Amen. 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 So um, I realise the pandemic hasn't been very kind to sermon series, uh, but we've been trying, or I've been trying, uh, to go through the story of Moses. Uh, And so we've been sort of tracking uh, um, him as a baby, him uh, becoming a murderer, becoming a nomad, um, and then he's got this call from God um, at the burning bush, um, and now he's been moved to a place where he's supposed to challenge the tyrant of Egypt, the king and uh, uh, Pharaoh. So uh, last time we looked at it, we found that he had uh, summoned up the chutzpah to go and talk to Pharaoh. And he made this confident call for freedom. You know, he could, he was welling up from his soul. I have met with God. God is going to free my people. And uh, I'm here as God's messenger to tell you that. Tragically, and if you read the text, inevitably, Pharaoh looked at this guy and he just said, what are you talking about? And there is a sneer and a scorn. Remember, this is not the meeting of two equals. This is a shepherd and a nomad who probably looked like a homeless fella coming before the most powerful man possibly in the world at that time with all his pomp and ceremony, with all his finery, with all his education and with all his arrogance. And so Pharaoh sneers at Moses' heartfelt call. I wonder if that's familiar to you. I certainly uh, listen to that and go, I've been there. I have had moments where this treasure in my soul, this love of Jesus, this absolute devotion to God uh, calls me to tell someone else about Jesus. And you know, you come up to them and go, look, uh, this seems an opportune time to mention the fact that you don't have to live in darkness, that you can come into the light. And you pour all your testimony, all your story, all your emotion, every clever word that you can think of, and the person just goes, what are you talking about? What are you on? That just makes no sense. You're just Uh, uh, talking gobbledygook and those deep assurances of our soul they just shot down by people who don't want to listen and that is Moses' position Uh, and you can imagine the uh, just the the torment he goes through as Pharaoh just goes no way Jose and the tyrant doesn't want to look weak and he doesn't want to lose his free free labour because of the religious ramblings of these two old guys. They are old. They are ethnically inferior. They are poor. They have no influence. He is king, and he doesn't need to listen to these toe rags. Their God couldn't be much to fear if his people 
God's people were wretched and enslaved. What sort of God have you got if you are under the thumb of another nation? So turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 5. Let me encourage you to bring a Bible of some measure so that you can read along with me. I think there's value in becoming familiar with the text and not just uh, uh, relying on someone else bringing it. So it says this in Exodus chapter 5, verse 5. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people... Uh, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave orders to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. Require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out flipping lazy religious people, not doing the work. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. That's what they're saying. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go out and get your own straw wherever you can find it but your work won't be reduced. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use the straw, and the slave drivers kept pressing them. You can feel that, uh, um, just that, that oppression there. It's active, it's, it, their foot is on their neck. Kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers that they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? The king doesn't just dismiss these cranks for cranks. He sees that something else is going on. He needs to make sure that these spiritual sentiments that are rising in these people are, do not get out of hand because uh, things will not go well if these religious folks start to get excited about their God. And I love what Pharaoh does, don't you? He makes them work longer and harder. Do you know what that means? They've got no time for religion. Isn't that wonderful? Pharaoh goes, you know what? I'm just going to make you work harder and longer. And then you've got no time to waste thinking about God. And Pharaoh is right on both counts. When people of God take him seriously, there is no end of hassle for everyone else. When people get God in them, things uh, change and people are upset. And the second truth that Pharaoh knows is that people can be turned from God by distracting them. Give them extra work. Long hours at the office. That'll stop you getting religion. If you have to be in at the break of day till the end uh, uh, when night sets, if you have to work that, you've got no time to pray. You've got no time to fast. You've got no time to read scripture. That is a great way to stop you uh, getting religion. And as we think about 
people uh, becoming alive in their faith, about upsetting other people and about the consequences of that, I want to read a, a slightly more modern uh, account in our Bibles. If you've got a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 19 and uh, we're going to look at this great moment uh, in Ephesus. It's uh, if you've ever been sort of young and idealistic in your faith, this is the sort of thing you turn to and go, oh, I would like some of that for Crawley or for Bewbush. As you get a bit older and a bit settled, you sometimes don't want to make so much trouble. But um, I used to love this uh, as a teenager, especially. So Acts chapter 19, verse 8. And Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. Such a beautiful way to refer to our faith, the way. I really wanted to call uh, Elim, this church in uh, Bubish, the way. Uh, but Elim was going through a branding point and they wanted everyone to be called Elim. Um, so he sort of moved away. But I love that. It's the way. There's no other way. This is it. Um, and so they maligned the way, you know, said lies about it. And so Paul left them and he took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. I don't know whether you've got um, a different version of scripture, but there's a lot of texts that have a little bit extra here. They said Paul went into the hall of Tyrannus and he spoke from 11 till 4. And basically, Paul would speak in the middle of the scorching sun when everyone having siestas. So instead of having siestas, you'd pop along to Hall of Tyrannus and you'd get the gospel. Uh, and I really like that, that sort of uh, Paul tailored his approach, uh, probably. Uh, so it goes on. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And then we're going to skip a few verses. Um, and then verse 18, many of those who believed came and openly confessed what they'd done. You know, they could see the tide turning. They could see people moving to Jesus. They could see the power of the gospel being exercised in their communities. And so they say, go, yeah, I'm actually a Christian. Sorry about that. I was a little bit shy and uh, now I'm not. Uh, and so it goes on. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, they came to a total of 50,000 drachmas. Now, the idea is uh, they sort of work out that on a sort of uh, an average daily wage. Um, so it looks like, uh, so I did the calculations this morning, it's about six million pounds, they reckon, uh, um, uh, uh, of sort of sorcery equipment burned. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And you're like, yeah, I'd like to be part of that. That sounds good. You know, people are starting to publicly uh, 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 make a difference for Jesus. And then we get to verse 23, um, which most of us probably aren't too happy with. Um, about that time, there rose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, um, if you want to imagine him, I uh, imagine him to be big and fat and wealthy, lots of gold rings on his fingers, you know, that sort of luxuriant drawl in his voice because he's done very well. Thank you very much. A uh, silversmith named Demetrius who made the silver shrines of Artemis. Uh, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. So we're talking the wealthy and powerful. He called them together. 
along with the workers in related and trade, and said in a uh, posh voice, probably, uh, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see in here how this dreadful fellow Paul, doesn't say dreadful in the Greek, but I've added it in there. This dreadful fellow Paul has convinced and, and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods are made by human hands. Nonsense, of course. And that our gods are no gods at all. There is a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, heavens forbid, uh, but also that the temples of the great goddess Artemis will, will be discredited. And the goddess himself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. We don't want that. We don't want the boat rocked. We don't want commerce disturbed. And when they heard this, they were furious and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Probably in less posh voices because they were kind of the workers. So in these short accounts, we have this disruption caused by Jesus. Uh, first comes that glorious moment. And it's a beautiful moment. Uh, hopefully you've encountered it in your own life. Someone realises the story of Jesus' death and resurrection is personal. It saves us when we confess Jesus as Lord, we move from darkness to light. We move from blindness to sight. It is just the best. It's a beautiful thing. And hopefully we've all experienced it personally and is a beautiful thing to be part of. It is my favourite bit when you are sat with someone and they make the decision to confess Jesus as Lord and Saviour. You're like, oh, that's another one in, Lord. Where can we go next? And God takes up residence in the heart. It's not just they suddenly, uh, their sort of, uh, their citizenship changes, but God takes up residence in their heart. The Holy Spirit starts working immediately. He gets in there and goes, right, we've got to clean up this heart. And he starts promoting goodness. And he starts clearing out evil. And I, as a pastor, it never ceases to amaze me. I, people come Christians and I think, right, here we go. I've got to work out, got to tell them all the things that they shouldn't be doing, that they are doing. And you go, oh, I don't even know where to start. And then the weeks go by and you see that person's behaviour change. Because the Holy Spirit is working in them. They don't need a pastor to tell them everything. Greed starts to fade away. Immorality, and we live in a world that's really uh, uh, um, embracing immorality. Uh, blasphemy, anger, substance abuse, they, they recede. Not all very quickly and immediately, but you see them recede and you're like, you know what, I don't have to say anything because the Holy Spirit is bringing that person into sanctification. And then there's scripture. It's not just what they feel. They read about it in scripture. You go, oh, I shouldn't be doing that. I won't be doing that anymore. Or they live with the community or they come together with us and realise, oh, that's how Christians behave. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so what happens is when you move from darkness to light, your behaviour changes and you have a different set of values. And you go, you know what? It's important for me, for instance... To be at church on a Sunday morning. 
It's important for me not to cheat people when I'm trading with them. It's important for me not to uh, get away with things. And what happens is you have this group of people with different values and they have an authentic worship of God. You know, they love to praise Jesus. They love to come in and Tim just has to strum one note and we're all there going shadabaki, shanda, and Tim's like, oh, I better get going. <laughs> and then we have this devoted love for others. We care about what happens. We don't just come in and out. We know what's going on in people's lives. Um, someone this morning shared with me something about planning permission and I was gutted that I hadn't known about it because we hadn't spent time over the last year like we would normally do. And it's interesting uh, uh, what it means to be a community of people living alongside with one another and uh, uh, learning to care about what they care about and learning to be selfless. And when we do that, we clash with everyone else because they've got a completely set of different values. They don't love what we love because they're in the darkness. And you know what? Christians end up being really, really annoying. We are people of a different uh, kingdom. And we are really, really annoying. We question all the things that they take for granted. Well, why are you doing that? Well, yeah, but why are you doing that? Do you think that really is a good idea? This thing that you keep on doing, is that the wisest way forward? In your um, culture, in your politics, in your economics, is that really the best way forward? Because I belong to a different kingdom and I've got some few questions about that. I've got a few questions how you view sex. I've got a few questions of how you view money. I've got a few questions about how you view power, how you view everyone uh, uh, from unborn children to old people. I've got a different perspective. Now, when there's only a handful of us, we can be ignored or dismissed. You know, when we're in the vast minority, they can go, oh, there's just those lunatics that, that go to the bar once a week. We can forget about them. But when you grow, they have more consequences because they can't just ignore you. They keep rubbing it, coming across you and going, oh, flipping Christians again. In Ephesus, the Christians were like, yeah, we're not having these goddesses around. Um, we're just going to just reject them. We're not going to buy them. We're not going to have them in our houses. Uh, and we're not going to say they're worth anything. We're going to say this Artemis and uh, uh, this goddess, they're nothing. They're not anything. And they burnt six million pounds worth of stuff that they were just like, that's just not, go or not of God. They didn't sell them on, did they? They didn't try and put them on eBay. <laughs> Which would be very tempting to do. You go, well, you know, I'm not interested in this statue of Buddha now, I've become a Christian, but it's probably worth a few quid. The unbelievers around them suddenly found that things were getting upset. The social order, the way things had always been, was getting upset. The economic regime of what made money was being disturbed. Acceptable religion, where you know what, everyone knew their place and civilization could keep on going the way it was, it was being blown out of the water and disturbed. Now, let me tell you, look, this is like a, um, like a footnote. 
Followers of the way, that's you and me, you love Jesus, we're not supposed to be deliberately awkward people. It's not that, like, so some people have that in their uh, uh, behaviour, don't they? They can't help it. Um, and uh, you, you know people that work, your neighbours, they're just deliberately awkward. They, they just want to uh, uh, um, force themselves into any conversation. Um, that's not supposed to be where Christians come from. We aren't pedantic about the rules because we follow the Spirit. And uh, we're not really interested in rules, we're interested in where the Spirit is leading us. And so we don't need to be pedantic about the rules like other people are. We don't need to be awkward. Oh, you're not doing that right. Oh, you shouldn't ride that electric scooter on the footpath. Um, And we don't pompously judge the lost for living badly. Because that's us. If we didn't know Jesus, we'd be doing exactly the same. There is that sense of, there but for the grace of God go I. When they're living chaotic uh, lives, we go, we know they're living in darkness. We don't get to pompously judge them and frown and go, oh, you won't never guess what they were doing. But we are naturally disruptive if we live intentionally for Jesus. Because as we love God, things get disrupted. Our families get disrupted. Our workplaces get disrupted. Society at large gets disrupted. Let me ask a question. I've lived awkwardly this for the last sort of week or so as I've been thinking it through. When did the Spirit last lead us to disrupt things? I'm not saying be pedantic about someone else's grammar or uh, uh, moaning about someone parking in like the disabled spot or something. I'm talking about like profound challenges to the status quo. Because we live in a broken world. It is broken. Do not pretend that you live in a world that lives in the light. It does not. And as followers of Jesus, we inevitably, if we follow him, disrupt stuff. Let me ask you, when was the last time you confronted rampant materialism? It's everywhere. It's crazy. When did the last time you challenge salacious gossip? That's going on all the time. When was the last time you challenged innuendo? If we haven't got on anyone's nerves recently because of living in the light... It's possible that we're accepting the status quo. We're going, you know what? Uh, I'm just going to accept the standards of darkness. It's just too much hard work. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be that Christian. But if we do that, some people in the darkness will go, oh, I'm glad someone said something. Oh, you know what? I need to know more. And they see our light even if it is like flickering, because some of us don't feel like blazing 100 gigawatt torches, do we? You know, we're like, oh, we're like a torch with the batteries running out, but we're trying to maintain it. And someone sees that and they go, oh, thank you. And they'll step another step towards Jesus. And they'll be grateful that you stand up for the trodden down or the abused or the exploited. And they'll ask questions. And you know what? They'll just become brothers and sisters because the Holy Spirit is just working in their lives. But more often than that, you're going to face opposition. 
That's what you're going to do. It's why a lot of people turn away from Jesus. It's why a lot of people that we've known here have gone off. It's why a lot of teenagers don't make it. When you're in your 20s, you don't make it because it's hard work and people oppose you. They come with their clever arguments. They come with their lifestyle choices, which seem uh, um, just full of activity. And the opposition comes, and we just get worn out and exhausted battling prevailing conventions. Should I tell you who protest? Our kids protest. They realise their parents aren't normal parents. And then don't share the values of their mates. They don't share the values of their schools. Their parents don't share the values of the media they watch. I had a very awkward conversation with one of my kids yesterday. Um, I was hearing them uh, talk over the phone with someone and I was like, you know what, I can't have that in my house. And so he came in, and they'd actually done nothing wrong. But I had to make sure that they understood that we're different. That the uh, uh, sort of gender, identity, sexuality, uh, that their friend uh, was advocating was not one that people who love Jesus can embrace. And they knew that, and, and, it, and it wasn't as awful as it could have been. Our kids will find us annoying and awkward because we won't accept the values of this world. Do you know what? If we're married to someone that doesn't love Jesus, they will protest too. They'll become opposition because we take time away from them. We take time away from them to pray. You're not praying again. Can't we just sit down and watch EastEnders? Oh, you're not going to church. You went to church last week. What are you doing? Our friends protest. Because we don't spend all our time and money on acquiring nice things. We don't value materialism. They like they do. All their conversations, for instance, about the latest phones or uh, whatever else they want to amass, we don't have them. We can't, we can't join in the conversation because we don't have those things. And they find us annoying. Our bosses protest, I've had this, because we value truth and family. We don't value profit and we don't value promotion. We go, you know what, I want things to be done right. And you know what, I'm not going to spend all hours in the office because I've got a family and a faith to foster. And you know what, our government protests. We champion the marginalised and unproductive. I wonder how many of you have said something to Henry Smith, protested against something. He has made a lot of awful decisions. Uh, I'm not saying that anyone, any other MP in his position would make any different. I'm not saying uh, he's any worse than any of the others. But he has made some pretty bad calls in Parliament. And I have sent him, uh, uh, I've sent protests to him, so what are you doing? And the emails, I'm just like, oh, like you, you do ask, why do you bother? But the whole point is our government, whether it's people in town hall, not even sure we've got a town hall now, but um, 
the, uh, um, wherever, they, wherever they make the rules and uh, uh, draw up the finances uh, locally and nationally, we're annoying because we don't do what they want us to. In Egypt, God's people were called lazy and deceived. And then their lives were made harder. In Ephesus, Christians were called godless and unpatriotic. And they were arrested. I wonder how you'd feel about being called unpatriotic for following Jesus. It's almost like a, a really big deal now being patriotic. Could you hack it? You and I belong to a coming kingdom, not this one. The kingdom in place now is in denial about our coming kingdom. And it doesn't like it when we remind it's coming. We are an irritant. And we're going to be lied about and maligned. And we're going to feel, if we haven't got our identity right, we're going to be eroded by what they say about us. Attempts will be made to wear us down. And do you know what? For a lot of Christians, it is working. We will be dismissed with every provocative word they can come up with. You're lazy you flipping Christians, you are unpatriotic, you are small-minded, you are legalistic, uh, uh, you are stupid, flipping stupid Christians believe, believing that God made the world, believe, believing it matters what you do with your private parts, believing it matters what you do with your uh, faith. You're stupid and it wears you down. Don't be phased by it. Don't let it upset you. Remember who you are in Jesus. Remember the spirit that lives in you. I want to read rather than just... So I had some really great moments of Christians that were uh, given a really hard time and then sort of survived. And then I was like, oh, I want to do more than that for you this morning. I want to raise your expectations rather than go, you can get by by the skin of your teeth. Is that all right? Thank you. Right, it's this great moment. So there was charity, uh, and it got awarded £10,000 for wrongful arrest or something. And that's the background. So after a few months of laughter and dreaming, it happened. It was a big day, and we were ready, though we still had butterflies in our bellies. There was about 40 people brought all the change they could carry, over 30,000 coins in bags, coffee mugs, briefcases, and backpacks. Another 50 people would be meeting us on Wall Street. Does everyone know what Wall Street is? It's sort of like centre of finance in New York, uh, a bit like the city in London. Uh, uh, hi and there was uh, these other guys hiding hundreds of $2 bills all over lower Manhattan in parks, napkin holders and phone booths. At 8.15, we started trickling into the public square in front of the main entrance to the New York Stock Exchange. We deliberately dressed to blend in. Some of us looked homeless, because that's because we were. Others looked like tourists, and others looked like business folk. Word of the redistribution had spread throughout New York, and uh, over 100 folks from the alleys and projects, as kind of like the uh, council states, uh, had gathered. And we had choreographed the celebration like a play production, making Wall Street the stage of our theatrics of counter-terror. At 8.20, Sister Margaret, our 70-year-old nun, and I stepped forward to proclaim the year of Jubilee. You can watch this on YouTube, and we would have shown it, but obviously we can't. Uh, but you can go and have a look it up on uh, YouTube this moment. 
Some of us have worked on Wall Street, she said. Well, she actually shouted. I think she had a loud hailer in the, uh, the video. Some of us have worked on Wall Street and some of us have slept on Wall Street. We are a community of strugglers. Some of us are rich people trying to escape our loneliness. Some of us are poor folks trying to escape the cold. Some of us are addicted to drugs and others are addicted to money. We are a broken people who need each other and God. For we have come to recognize the mess that we have created for our world. We have created of our world and how deeply we suffer from that mess. Now we are working together to give birth to a new society within the shell of the old. Another world is possible. Another world is necessary. Another world is already here. Then Sister Margaret blew the ram's horn like our Jewish ancestors used to and we announced, let the celebration begin. And 10 people stationed on balconies above the crowd threw hundreds of dollars in paper money filling the air. They dropped banners which read, stop terrorism, share, love and there is enough for everyone's need but not enough for everyone's greed. Gandhi. The streets turn silver. Our, uh, our pedestrians, tourists, homeless and business people began pouring out their change. We decorated the place with sidewalk chalk and filled the air with bubbles. Joy was contagious. Someone bought bagels and started giving them out. People started sharing their winter clothes. One of the street sweepers winked at us as he flashed a dustpan full of money. Another guy hugged someone and said, now I can get that prescription fulfilled. The police had come in full force, but were quite disarmed by the fun. Hard not, to, hard not to smile at bubbles and sidewalk chalk. One of them later told me he was ordered to get rid of them, but he couldn't tell who they were. <laughs> Laughing, he said, next time we have a jubilee, we should do it outside his police station. It worked. We had no idea what would happen. We knew it was dangerous, intentionally bringing God and mammon face to face. But this is precisely what we have committed our lives to. It is risky and yet we are a people of faith. Believing that giving is more contagious than hoarding. That love can convert hatred. Light can overcome darkness. Grass can pierce the concrete, even on Wall Street. Doesn't that thrill you? Didn't you go, oh, I'd quite like to be that. If someone else organised it, I would turn up uh, to that. How is your faith? How is your hope and love of Jesus? How is it doing? Is it vibrant in your hearts? Or is it sort of uh, a dead corpse on a slab? If we have, if we upset those in the darkness, if we are maligned and lied about, if we find life hard because of it, just want to encourage you, that's that what happens. You're light and darkness doesn't understand it. The grief is going to be worth it. It's not worth fitting in. It's not worth doing what everyone else does. It's not worth sharing the values of darkness. And let me also encourage you, and I think this is probably where more of us are at. If we are a little quiet of our faith, you know, we just wonder that we've managed to come to church again. If we're a little quiet in our faith, if we're a little subdued, if we don't want the hassle, just ask you to take a step more into the light. You don't have to take over Wall Street, but perhaps you can do something a little bit more to shine that light, to question 
the values that this world uh, has decided it wants. People need to see you. You are the only Jesus they may see today. And it's just a challenge I want to throw out to you. Um, if you'd like to stand, and I'm going to close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the light and that when we come to you, we see clearly. And Lord God, we thank you for the, the beauty of being followers of the way. Lord God, I pray that you help us uh, behave like light in the world around us. Lord God, I pray that we may not be awkward just for awkward's sake, but Lord God, that we would be annoying because you are in our hearts that we would disrupt greed and hatred, that we would uh, uh, throw a spanner in the works when it comes to people being marginalised and dismissed, when, Lord God, uh, godly behaviour is ridiculed, may we stand up for it. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us all courage to do this. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.